American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Before the Civil War, the South's white cotton planters had been, by any measure, the wealthiest people in the United States. They had had disproportionate control over the nation's politics. They had been able to use a disproportionate amount of the nation's credit and capital, and they were very, very wealthy as a result. The Civil War was obviously a devastating defeat for them. They lost the biggest portion of their property with the redefinition of enslaved people as fully free human beings who could no longer be held as property. Their land lost a lot of its value given the devastations of war. And they were simply no longer able to extract the same kind of forced labor that they'd been able to extract from enslaved people. So the cotton that they produced uh, was simply not going to be produced in the same kind of quantity. They had a lot of rethinking to do. And over the 10 or 15 years after the Civil War, they came to some fairly coherent conclusions. And most of the political and economic leaders of the former Confederate states would have agreed to these, these propositions. First of all, they thought that white supremacy had to be maintained. They simply could not conceive of a, of a society in which former slaves were political equals, much less economic equals. And so they would spend years going to great lengths to make sure that the Reconstruction Amendments, which mandated the end of slavery and the equality before the law of African Americans, were simply not going to be enforced in any systematic way in the South. And by doing this, they were, able, they were going to be able to bring less wealthy whites into the circle of political support by giving them the sort of psychological wage of a higher political status, a higher social status than former slaves. They were going to be able to count on their political support. And this would help support, in turn, the second proposition. And that was that the South should have what they often called home rule. The South should be able to control its own political and, to some extent, its own economic destiny. With the end of Reconstruction in 1876, with the bargain that mm, historians disagree about whether it's written or unwritten, that is signed between Northern Republicans and Southern Democrats, the South gets a lot of that independent political control. And they would be able to wield that control for over 100 years to maintain the South as a segregated domain. But the third proposition might seem to work at variance with these first two. And that is the idea that the lesson to be taken from the Civil War was that an industrialized society was going to be more powerful and more wealthy over the long run than a primarily agricultural society. The idea of a new South, which is a phrase that comes to be more and more current on the lips of the promoters and politicians of the South from the 1870s onward, the idea of a new South is a South that in some ways is more, much more like the North. It is going to be, they believe, an industrialized society, a modern society, a society that no longer has the institution of slavery, but a society that is increasingly focused on industrial labor. We'll see how well that worked out. So maybe the most articulate exponent of the New South idea 
was an Atlanta newspaper editor named Henry Grady. Now, Grady's father had been killed by a Union soldier. Uh, Atlanta itself had been burned to the ground. But by the 1870s, Grady had become uh, the most prominent writer in what was becoming one of the most prominent New South towns, rising, as it were, from the ashes of the Confederacy. But the problem Grady identified in the South can probably be best summed up uh, by this one apocryphal story that he used to tell again and again in editorials and speeches advocating for the South to become more of an independent, industrialized economy. So Grady said, I attended a funeral once in Pickens County in Georgia, and this was a particularly sad funeral. The farmer who was getting buried was so poor that his overalls only had one strap. They buried him in the midst of a marble quarry. They cut through solid marble to make his grave, and yet the little tombstone they put above him was from Vermont. They buried him in the heart of a pine forest, but the pine coffin was imported from Cincinnati. They buried him within touch of an iron mine, but the nails in his coffin and the iron in the shovel that dug his grave were imported from Pittsburgh. They buried him by the side of the best sheep grazing country on the earth, and yet the wool and the coffin bands and, and the coffin bands themselves were brought from the north. The South didn't furnish a thing for that funeral, but the corpse and the hole in the ground. There they put him away and the clods rattled down on his coffin and they buried him in a New York coat and a Boston pair of shoes and a pair of breeches from Chicago and his shirt from Cincinnati, leaving him nothing to carry into the next world with him to remind him of the country in which he lived and for which he fought for four years, but the chill of blood in his veins and the marrow in his bones. All right, so what did Southern elites propose to do about this real divergence in the economies of the North and the South? For one thing, they looked at the North and they saw that the North's railroad network was much more extensive and dense and technologically advanced than that of the South, even before Sherman and other Union generals had gone through and they burned up all the railroad ties and bent the rails around trees. As they go through the process of rebuilding, they look for more capital. They try to import credit from the North. They try to make links between their own local railroad companies and the larger railroad companies, which have become so powerful in the northern economy. And to a large extent, they succeed in doing so. In fact, northern railroad corporations find that it's really politically advantageous for them to do things like this, create a local branch of their larger corporation and have the president be a former Confederate general. Those guys look really good on posters and in company reports, and they make the companies really popular with the local population. So that's one thing that they do. Another thing that Southern elites do is they get Congress to change the taxation laws on textiles. And these create a tax incentive for textile factories to be located near cotton fields. Now, the South has lots of cotton fields. They also have lots of cheap labor. And they even have water power to drive textile factories. So northern textile factories literally pack up Disassemble their, disassemble their factories and move them down to North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Atlanta, for instance, Henry Grady's Atlanta becomes a major textile center, and other southern states. By about 1900, the South has become the center of textile production in the U.S. Now, the cheap labor that works in those factories is almost all white. These factories follow segregation practices. 
and they promote themselves as a way to literally get white labor away from black labor, to make it so that poor whites do not have to work with poor blacks. And this leads to a third policy, which is the idea that black labor is going to continue to be segregated and pushed into the, the worst paid, most difficult, uh, most degraded kinds of jobs. Now, there are laws that actually help to, to implement this, uh, including laws that literally rent out convict labor from the South segregated plantations to some of the most difficult kinds of road building and mining kinds of enterprises. And the death rates among African-American convict laborers are extremely high. And that, in turn, leads to another major phenomenon and probably the key and final uh, component of the Southern elite's economic plan. And that is the use not just of cheap labor, but the extraction of natural resources. Southern timber is cut down uh, in huge swaths in the late 19th century. Once, for instance, uh, the great big uh, lumber mills uh, in Michigan and in Wisconsin and Minnesota have exhausted the local forests, attention turns to the southern longleaf pine forests. And those are devastated in the late 19th and early 20th century. It turns out that the southern Appalachians are full of coal, and those are mined uh, in huge amounts starting again in the late 19th century, a process that continues with strip mining today. Through all of these kinds of extractive industries, many people in the South become very wealthy. And some Southerners, some Southern laborers, move out of the agricultural sector into these other areas. But these are also cheap uh, labor sectors. These are also areas that do not necessarily lead to the kind of uh, increasingly complex economies that you see with true industrialization, especially when many of the profits are actually exported out of the region. So by the early 20th century, despite the attempts of people like Henry Grady and others to organize new systems of production and consumption, new networks of credit in the South, what you see is that the South is still to a large extent still a colonial economy. And it remains the case that 9 or 10 million Southerners are trapped uh, in what is nearly a form of peonage as cotton sharecroppers in the cotton fields that still stretch from South Carolina to Texas. All of these phenomena would keep the South distinct, separate, and increasingly more poor than the rest of the country. So that by the 1930s, 70 years after the Civil War, 50 years after Henry Grady crusaded for a new kind of Southern economy, Franklin Roosevelt, the President of the United States, would still be labeling the South the nation's economic problem number one. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University.